Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is with a brother and sister team. They are also colleagues, but they're so incredible. And our conversation went in a much deeper direction than I anticipated, which is such an honor because they're not making me edit it out. We're talking today about gender, sexuality, really um, understanding language around issues that are so hard for parents to talk about, yet so important for children to be able to feel safe and seen and heard by their families so that they can be in a protected space in a world that may or may not be so protective. And I was so grateful because I'm asking some questions that are somewhat basic for a lot of people who are immersed in this work. And yet it's a topic that's really confusing for other people. So I wanted to ask all the questions that I could to get information and knowledge and wisdom and I got so much more. So a little bit about them. Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris is a pediatrician and physician investigator at the Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Northwestern University. She examines the influence of social adversities experienced in childhood and subsequent child and adolescent health. She's award-winning. She's um, not only uh, a very active member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, she actually serves as the chair and founding member of the provisional section of Minority Health, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Herd Garris is also a recipient of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Fellowship at the University of Michigan. And she, in addition to her MD, has a master's of science in health and healthcare research. And she's just awesome and the mother of a six-year-old son. And Dr. Nevin Hurd is an assistant professor of clinical counseling at Roosevelt University and has served as a nationally certified counselor and has experience with clients in many settings such as substance use, rehabilitation, crisis centers, college counseling centers, and elementary schools. And Dr. Hurd's research and service focuses on multicultural and social justice issues, centering the intersectional realities of sexual and racial minorities, people of low socioeconomic status, LGBTQ plus populations, and those affected by HIV AIDS. 
Dr. Hurd has held national and state positions of leadership for divisions of the American Counseling Association, including the Association for Multicultural Counseling and Development and the Association for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Transgender Issues and Counseling. I'm so honored to have them and their time, and I'm also very lucky to work with them. So this was a really amazing conversation. I hope you listen to the very end because this was just gold. And most importantly, as parents and caregivers, this conversation really hits home how important it is to make sure that we name things for our children, that we talk through things that we didn't think needed to be said and recognize that when we offer an environment of safety for our kids to learn, share, seen, be heard, and loved unconditionally, children can thrive. And when we forget to share and name and be there under any circumstances, children can confuse silence with disapproval, disinterest, or worse. So I'm, again, really looking forward to this conversation. If you enjoy it, please write a review. And of course, if you enjoy these episodes, don't hesitate to subscribe and rate if you have something nice to say. And thank you so much for listening. I do think parents will say like, well, what age can we explain what's going on? And maybe it's just naming things, but it's not odd to a three-year-old. If two men are together, it's not strange to a three-year-old because they haven't lived in a world where it's strange yet. So if you have that exposure, you're just pointing it out. Same thing if you see black or brown skin or white skin and you're a toddler, you just point it out. It changes the conversation if you are talking to a teenager who's never had this exposure and who's lived a life in a really heteronormative society. And I don't even know if heteronormative is still the way anybody's talking about it because I feel very behind, which is why what I was thinking is I would love to hear from you the language, like as simple as this sounds, like what is gender? What is sex? What is sexuality? And I would love to hear from Nia about sort of in, in your practice as a physician, at what point are kids coming in? For example, how do you do, um, how do you look at private parts and say like, welcome to the world to your baby boy? Or, you know, are you consciously saying like, I'm not using that language anymore? How does that go? And where are you seeing that kids figure out what their gender is? Like, at what point are you noticing that in your practice? And I know the research probably speaks to this, which both of you can probably tell me. And this is just one of those where I'm going to admit just shameful ignorance. And I've read enough to be able to have a conversation, but not enough at all to have anything to offer in the conversation. It's okay. I think yeah. that I totally can do that. Can I just add, Nevin, if you feel comfortable to talk about gender expression, because I, I think that's something that people don't often talk about, gender identity and then gender expression. I would love to want to talk about that. That's okay, too. I probably won't give great definitions, but hopefully (laughs) things that we can use, right? (laughs) First, um, first, uh, 
want to say and point to a resource that's um, the genderbred uh, person. So the genderbred person um, is a resource that you can use that talks about the difference between identity, um, attraction, um, expression, and sex. Um, it has been sometimes people feel like because it is a person, it's still a little it's still hard to swallow for some people. So there's also some different diagrams that use uh, gender unicorn and other things, which would be super appropriate, right, to use with kids. But in me telling you about the genderbred person, I do it for multiple reasons. One specifically is because I remember when I was first introduced to the genderbred person, it was probably in, I want to say like 2013, 2011. And that was, I think I was introduced to version two version 1.1 or 1.2. And now we're on like version four point something. So, and I say that to say the way we've come to conceptualize and think about gender um, has come a long way in a very short time. And I don't necessarily say that as permission to then allow people to kind of mess up, but as a way to be compassionate with yourself as you're trying to learn something new and uh, the people around you might not be aware of how things have grown and changed. So I appreciate, we t- I appreciate that very much because it is hard. To, sometimes you just want to avoid saying anything because it feels like it's, it's a dynamic process figuring all of this out. And that's really interesting to know that there are already iter- four iterations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sending me the link. Yeah. So when you think of, So I'll share the way it was explained to me and kind of where we are now with things. So gender uh, in my courses that, and I'm going to say the year to add once again, context. (laughs) So in courses that that I took in around, I'll say a span of like, we're talking 2009, 2010s college courses. uh, It was always explained to me that gender is a social construct and sex is biological, biological Mm -hmm. sex. And with sex being the um, expression uh, through chromosomes, hormones, and and other traits, secondary traits, that that was sex. Another piece of the puzzle is uh, gender expression. So basically, the idea with gender that gender is socially constructed, we have come in society to make up what we classify as gender. And when we think of gender historically or traditionally, there were two genders, right? The gender binary. Um, manness or womanness, and that was the spectrum, uh, and there was a dichotomy. So with that, right, we have what are boy clothes, girl clothes. We see this oftentimes in early childhood, and we gender things and give them to the to kids, um, right? And that's why it's so important when we do these gender reveals, uh, so we know what also gifts to give certain kids. So, and those later become, um, through socialization, right? We have certain gender roles. Gender expression is the idea that, um, you can express your gender through your clothes, behavior, speech. So this might come up. Uh, so I think in clothes is obvious because we have seen this with like boy clothes, girl clothes, but you can also do it with speech, right? Um, lower, lower tone voices are seen as more masculine. That's why it's, Uh, So with clients that I've seen who are trans men, meaning that they uh, were assigned a sex of female at birth, um, but they identify as uh, men, 
um, they work on talking in a lower register so that they can express a gender expression that is closer to manness. What is Peanut? The app connects you with like-minded women throughout all stages of motherhood. Peanut provides a safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive to build friendships, ask questions, and find support. Introducing you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in life, Peanut provides access to a community of women who are there to listen, to share information, and offer valuable advice. Whether it's understanding IVF, adoption, pregnancy, first years, or nursery and beyond, Peanut is a place to connect with women like you. Have you ever struggled to meet friends or ever needed any advice? Peanut takes how isolating it can be to go through all the different stages of conception and adoption and parenthood and helps you find people who are there for you and going through similar experiences. And we know that isolation can be so hard on women during this period. In fact, we know that isolation only amps up during the time that you're thinking about and going through pregnancy, adoption, and childbirth, as well as during infancy. And and all of the things that we go through, we do better when we have resources and support from others. Download the app for free today so you can head to peanut.app.link slash raisinggoodhumans or find it on your app store. Hey guys, it's me, Christelle Lim, co-founder and CMO of Bumo. As a busy working parent myself, I felt like there was a lack of options for parents and I personally needed more support. So that's what we're doing here on Being Bumo. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. So subscribe now to Being Bumo at applepodcast.com slash beingbumo or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, gotta go. See you guys soon. So one thing that's really new that I'm just going to touch on just so that I can say that I touched on one of the more recent things that is being discussed within the gender world is that um, also the idea that sex is socially constructed as well. Ah. I know. So I, I, I won't go into that. I just needed to say it so that we can say it was said, but we can stick on more. No, but I'm, I'm glad you said that because I want to know what the conversations are. And also that's a harder, that's like... We're evolving and developing and trying to understand things where you didn't grow up learning these things. That one blows my mind. So I appreciate you saying that because it just gives space to start understanding it. But let's, yeah, let's go back to, to where you are. May I just ask one clarifying question? Absolutely. It's going to sound incredibly basic, but just to be clear, when you were talking about gender expression for a trans man, Mm -hmm. lowering of the voice. Can you be a trans man lowering your voice for expression without having changed your physiology? So this, I'm so glad you asked that question. And uh, I, I want to backtrack a little to also talk about cisgender because Thank when, um, <laughs> yeah, because, because when we are, that might be another term that comes up for people. So cisgender um, just basically means that 
you your gender identity that you feel aligns with the gender that you were assigned to at birth. Like um, I am a cisgender white female. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and so basically, uh, if you want to think in a dichotomous kind of way, cis is in contrast to trans. Yeah. So when I say things like uh, trans man, the gender that I use is the gender that they identify with currently. And the implication um, is the trans part explains that your assignment at birth is different than your who you are. Yes. Yeah. And I'll say that there's ongoing language um, that changes. So where, um, so th- this is even in a constant state of, this is in a dynamic state. So we're talking about this today. It might change next week uh, ab- about what is seen as acceptable. Um, and I don't say that as a way to belittle, but I say that as a way of um, that we need to constantly kind of be doing this work and seeing um, what is correct and how we identify and talk about folks. Um, so back to your question about physiology. Wait, can I just uh, say one thing? Yes. Like cis, I don't know if it's Latin or what, but I know from like chemistry, cis means same. So those match, oh. right? I draw on it from chemistry terms, but cis means same and trans, I think means opposite. So that m- makes sense. Like how, what you were assigned as at birth, the sex you were assigned as birth is opposite for how you, you know, how you feel, how you identify. So if people can remember that, cis is same, trans is different. Word. Look at that. Yes. Give us these mnemonics, Nia. Um, so I have to just keep reminding everyone <laughs> your siblings <laughs> the dynamic a little relaxed. Yes, we yes, we know each other very well. Um, <laughs> we are we are siblings turned colleagues, not colleagues that have turned into family in other ways. Exactly, but. exactly. <laughs> so the question that you bring up around physiology and how that relates to um, identifying as trans or, or trans men, this is uh, one of those topics that um, people, people within the community will have, people within the trans communities will have their own opinions about, about this. But the lay, the scientific right opinion where we as professionals draw um, the line is with um, that you don't need to transition physiologically nor through your expression to identify a certain way. Um, That's not necessary in how you identify. What is only necessary is how you identify. So there could be a person that is in what we would say is a skirt that's pink and all these traditionally gender expressive ways that um, may come across as femme, but they themselves may identify as non-binary or as man or as, as, as masculine. And so one's gender identity really has nothing to necessarily do with their expression or physiology. It's how they have come to feel about themselves. Um, I think a good word to use, it's not scientific, but a good word to use for us to understand is how they feel about the essence of themselves. So it's not always 
about their expression or their actual um, uh, body parts or their makeup, but it's the essence in which they feel about themselves is their gender identity. Thank you. I have another question. Now I have 12 questions. Of course. Um, so I have a billion questions, but one of the things that you just said struck me as a reason to that S the idea of essence made me think, you know, when somebody, cause this has happened to me, a client has called and said, my three-year-old boy just wants to wear dresses all the time and wants to be a girl. Is he going to be trans or is he going to be gay? Those are the two questions I get to which I'm like, I have no answer for you other than whatever your child is doing in the moment is what they're doing in the moment. But now I'm realizing that, and plenty of kids for, for plenty of kids, it is probably, as it turns out, you're looking, looking in hindsight, there were these things that their ways of being in essence kind of gave you like a little window into their future. And for others, it was just like a moment in time. But what I'm realizing about essence is so if you don't look at gender as binary, would your essence be malleable over time? So at three, you might be trans and at six, you might be cis and at 17, you might be trans again. And at 25, you might be cis or does it not work that way? I and think... my questions start to sound like I live <laughs> under a rock inside of some, you know, like weird alien nation. Just let me know. Yeah, I think... Um, I think this is a great, I would love to hear Nia's thoughts because I imagine that part of this is natural explorations that kids do, which I'm sure she would know plenty about. But my answer to that, uh, especially the second part of that question about can, can someone go back and forth? I think, um, I hesitate to answer because I know that that idea in different contexts, gender going back and forth, has been used as a way to not be affirmative and and affirm uh, certain trans kids as they're um, exploring their gender identity. So that's why I hesitate to answer. I want to give that caveat. Um, The idea that they don't really know and in 10 years they could be, um, they, they would want to go back, but by then it's too late, right? And right. so, Thank how, you. yeah, no, but yeah. I think, no, and yeah, and I realize that it's not, I think it's kind of like, I'm, I'm going to make a very loose association, but kind of like a colorblind world. Like, it would be great if we could live in a colorblind world, but for that to actually happen, for race to actually uh, have to not matter what color we are, like, racism would not have to exist, right? And society would have to be different. And I think truly, like, similarly with gender, um, yeah, that would be wonderful for someone to be able to float. And that when we think of, like, uh, gender fluidity, like, yeah, that would be kind of awesome in that way. Unfortunately, society is not like that. But I think um, along the line, so I can't really answer because we don't live in a totally hypothetical world where we're not gendered from the start. Right. Um, And possibly if we weren't, that would be a possibility. But what I will say based on this reality and where we are is that some people do do that period, what you're talking about, right? Go and they're like, oh, but they don't use it in the terms of, oh, I'm cis today. I'm trans today. They might say, oh, I'm feeling real femme today. I'm feeling real butch today. I'm feeling real mask. I'm feeling 
this today. And I would say like that is more representative of an identity that we refer to as gender fluid um, or even um, non-binary, right? The, the moving back and forth. And okay. so, and as you've talked about, there are some people that are pretty like, um, as you've identified yourself as pretty like firm in their gender and, and feel very comfortable like, oh no, this is me, like, right? And so those people exist too. And then there's also people who are gender queer that don't fit inside. So right with gender fluid, they could would still maybe fit inside the binary where they're feeling mass today or femme another day, but there's also gender queer folks who live outside that binary who don't feel like they are one or the other or ever in between, they're outside of that. So queer, I did not know that either. This is both devastating and fascinating. So queer is living outside of any of these norms that we sort of adhere to. Specifically gender queer. Um, queer oh. in itself has a um, more broad connotation and meaning, but when people refer to themselves as um, gender queer, they are queering gender. So they are other than gender. If you identify as queer, that's related to sexuality? Not necessarily. So this is that. This is the other thing. Ooh, we are here today. Um, so within the uh, spectrum of queerness, people could use queer to refer to their sexual orientation, to refer to their gender identity, to refer to their um, stance um, when it comes to like politics as well. But queer, when people use queer, th the best answer I could give to that, when someone sa is saying they're queer, what they are saying is they they don't live within their context of living is not heterosexual or is not cis. It, it, it's different in some way. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's a word that within the queer community itself is one that's not necessarily accepted because it is a reclaimed word, a word that's been reclaimed for ownership as well. You probably know Glossier for their skincare products and for popularizing the glowy, dewy skin look. Glossier also creates makeup products, body care products, and fragrance. Glossier believes in the power of self-expression and personal choice in beauty and beyond. So they're always in conversation with their community about the best ingredients, the best techniques, and dream products. The results are products that condense the best of beauty and are inspired by real routines. I. I'm just having an easy time talking about Glossier because when the products came, I actually had to remove my kids' hands from grabbing them because I have a teenager and Glossier is everything. But I love the cloud paint and use it for cheeks and lips and it's cruelty-free, dermatology tested, and just awesome. Plus, the hand cream is awesome. It's fast absorbing, nutrient rich, and a moisturizer for hands that's non-greasy. And it features an antioxidant packed botanical extract blend for happy, nourished skin. Get Glossier You and hand cream by visiting glossier.com slash podcast slash humans. For a limited time, new customers can get 10% off your first order. That's glossier.com slash podcast slash humans, G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R dot com slash podcast slash humans. My question is, 
like a term like queer that's been that was once used in a derogatory way is it that when you're using this language you should wait for someone to let you know their preference without just kind of deciding or labeling someone or how you refer to them or is it now that i'm imposing that there might be a negative or positive implication but that's on that's my sh- stuff but that's nothing to do with the experience of the other person So I think it's always best to err on two things. It's best to err on the side of caution and then to identify folks, how they want to be identified. So yes, if you're able to get their identifiers first and then mirror their language, I would do that um, in most cases. And when I say err on the side of caution, so one thing that I'll do, I refer to myself as queer. And when I talk about the community, I'll refer to it as the queer community. But, and what I tell students or other folks is it's usually safe to say like the LGBTQ plus community or that person is um, LGBTQ plus in that way. That would be my best advice. Because it encompasses everything and it's not imposing a particular label, but it is saying not heteronormative. Right. And it allows them and gives people space to um, identify themselves. And I would say, you know, Nia and I, we've had this conversation about the privilege around people who are straight that, right, that they never have to come out. Uh, I remember when I was coming out, Nia used to uh, talk about that. But so I think it's an, and an, an, an even coming out, I feel like I'm still coming out because uh, luckily, one thing that I think queer people have the privilege of is one, a lot of introspection <laughs> that you have to do. And within that introspection, right, that has allowed me to grow in my own ways that I think about my sexual orientation or gender identity. But it also has created, like, I'm, I'm fairly certain, like, I had to be willing to lose it all to accept who I am, right, and share that with other people. And so I wouldn't have done that, taken that risk without knowing, like, this Please. is who I am. Exactly. Um, And so that's why I also think it's super important that we make sure we call people by their names, by their pronouns, and identify them how they want to be identified. And is that why putting an identifier next to your name, whether it's a, if, whether you're cis or trans, allows for the conversation to, to be open, that, that this is a, that we're all here, that everybody should be comfortable with who they want to present or who they are and that's kind of like a universal we're all in this or does it if you're cis is it like just a gesture of I guess what I am asking is is there a gesture in putting your pronouns out there even when they feel very obvious or is it just another performative thing oh oh my gosh (laughs) no I laugh because my sister and I, Dr. Heard Garris, we had a whole, what, four hour, 30 minute car ride talking about this exact thing and how, um, do you, you can tell, you can tell this story. I won't be ashamed. Okay. You won't. Okay. I, I appreciate your, I, not to be, I will try not to be ashamed. I, I appreciate your authenticity and vulnerability to give way to other people's vulnerability and authenticity and growth. Well, I think this story ultimately has a happy ending because it's why I put my pronouns by my name. I was inspired by you, Nia. 
we had this conversation around her feeling like for a lot of people, them putting their pronouns by their name for these Zoom calls, we're all on Zoom calls right now. And uh, she saw a lot of people doing this and felt like it was performative. Like a lot of- It wasn't Zoom. It's in their um, email signature. Oh, email, email signature. prior, yeah, email signatures. Email signatures, Mm -hmm. right. And felt like it was performative and that folks- didn't always back up this performance with also like action and true authentic support. And so we had a conversation around (laughs) her apprehension and doing it herself (laughs) and (laughs) her resistance to it, which I'll say it wasn't a resistance to the idea. And let me talk about also the idea, the idea and, and us using our pronouns and putting them, um, in our emails and in our Zoom things is is to give space for um, the peop- for for people who don't identify in certain ways, so that we don't have to assume because someone can have a gender expression, right? The language that we've covered have a gender expression that we think is traditionally uh, masculine, or we would read them as a man, but they themselves identify as. Uh, she, her, or use pronouns like they, them. And so it uh, gives space to one, we don't have to assume and to normalize this idea of that there are people of various genders and that we need to be aware and insert these in the conversation. So that that's the idea of it. And so Nia, and if I get any of this wrong, you're here so you can speak up for yourself, but Nia wasn't, I guess, resistant to to that idea. She was resistant to, she felt like a lot of the people who were doing it, it was performative and it wasn't really authentic and they weren't really supportive of their trans folks. And so we ended up just having a conversation about what does it mean for her as a black woman who's a pediatrician for her to have her pronouns and that way it'd be Mm -hmm. a symbol and create the same space and talked about how our other identities, her specific identities might give way to another person who she's working with or seeing in an email like, oh, okay, well, she she is safe in that way. We've talked about safety today. She is safe in that way. I I, I can um, talk to her about these things. Or she is, right, in a very transphobic society at times, she is someone who recognizes the need for this and who may see me when others don't. And that's why I use mine. (laughs) I use my pronouns uh, in mine now. That's super helpful because it it is, I put my pronouns on my social media, I don't know when, sometime this year. And one of my friends said, you, she heard yourself. I just saw. And she said it in this way, like she was, I don't even, she was just noticing. She just said, you, she heard yourself. And I said, you know what? I did not think anybody would notice, but I just felt like I needed to make sure that it was clear that I am open um, and supportive. But I also didn't want to do that. I did not, again, I was like, I don't want to do a performative thing, but I think I'm in a field where it's important to give that information. Um, But I got like, I got a little thrown off that I was called out because 
I wasn't sure if maybe it was because it seemed inauthentic. And I do think, especially in medicine, I noticed that, um, you know, at the hospital, it is recommended that you put your pronouns now. And I think that it makes sense, especially if you're seeing patients, that that says something about what you're open to, regardless of what your personal pronouns are. But I don't think I understood that before because I get sloppy in my Zooms. Like right now, I'm like, they know what my pronouns are. So I did not put my pronouns in. Um, Well, and I think it's like similar to why people started saying partner, right? To get out of this heteronormativity, to get out of the normativity of it all. So like we were saying partner to make space for these people who it might not always, one, it might not always be safe for them to reveal their sexual orientation, but to also say like, hey, Uh, do you have a partner to not assume their sexual orientation? And that was, that that personally was something that I pushed back against as a queer person because I was like, no, I want to like, it's confusing to me if I don't know your, like, if you're talking about your husband, if you have a husband, call him your husband, if you, whatever. But um, it was within these kind of conversations that, um, my sister and I had about creating space for other people where I've, I've, I've always used the language of, do you have a partner, but more so in referring to my own past relationships as partners and things like that. Um, I think it's important for us to use our language as we've kind of been discussing to create space for other folks, especially when we're in um, a more privileged identity. Yeah. I, I, I don't like the partner thing. I feel like, I feel like the LGBTQ plus community, they have had to do so many acrobatics to even be able to have partners that they're able to talk about and marry and whatever, that I kind of do feel like straight people, cisgender people, whatever, should, I feel like they should let them have that word. It is confusing to me when um, people say their partner and they're they're married to a husband or a wife or whatever. But I do think it allows in many contexts to allow for that conversation to happen. So I totally understand and respect why people um, will choose to say partner, but it is confusing. So you're saying you, you prefer for you saying husband and for Nevin, say partner. Well, I think Nevin could say husband. You know, I, I don't think I have a preference what other people say. <laughs> Not to my knowledge, does he have a husband? But, right, but, but so yes, if he had a husband, yeah, he say husband. But yeah, was... for me, it feel like it would feel weird for me to say partner instead of like my husband. But if it helps to create space for people, like I think you should do that. But I also feel like it's a word that has been co-opted from the LGBTQ plus community, right? Like to say you have a partner. No, you, you know, you're a straight woman married to a man. You have a husband, you know, so I, I think it can be used either way. And I'm not here to tell anybody if they should use partner or not. But for me, it does not feel genuine. Got it. Yeah. And I think part of my resistance, right, was sometimes when I think, um, especially when it comes to allies, you might change your profile pic for a moment, but you're not really in the fight or in the battles, uh, was my resistance to cis straight folks who were married 
not using husbands and wives and in, in those terms was it seemed like an avoidance of like some true issues. And, and so like, no, I have to say partner because I'm not allowed to get married at this moment. And by you saying partner, we are not recognizing that there's a system in which you actually can get married. You do have these rights and I don't. And so I think that's where my resistance was initially. And I think some of my sisters and I have just moved into a place where I'll use partner, not only in asking other people and not assuming the gender of their partner, but in identifying someone I'm in a relationship with. I'm happy to announce that this episode is sponsored by FX Chocolate. FX Chocolate is a supplement company that's got chocolate down to a science. Close your pill drawer and skip the daily drudge of gulping down pills and upgrade your routine with FX Chocolate. They've created six different supplement variations, Exhale, Focus, Thrive, Defend, Superfood, and Zen, each one lending targeted support to a specific need. Nutraceutical ingredients like ashwagandha, reishi mushroom, CBD, they are expertly packed into a handcrafted square of sugar-free, keto-friendly, dark chocolate. Chocolate is not only a more enjoyable way to take your supplements, but it also increases your body's ability to absorb the supplements, making it more effective. Getting all your nutrients is hard enough. So it feels like a small but mighty gift to know that taking care of our bodies and getting the nutrients we need doesn't have to be a drag. FX Chocolate is offering my listeners 20% off their first order. Use the promo code HUMANS at checkout and get 20% off your first order. Health does not have to be hard. Use promo code H-U-M-A-N-S at checkout. FX Chocolate, good for you, doesn't have to be hard to do. Thank you. Again, this is really, I mean, it's great and so helpful, but also just mind blowing that these (laughs) basic ideas are not fluent in my brain. So I want to go back to kids and like, I want to go back to gender in childhood because I'm curious. I know there's a lot of different schools of thought on this, but I'm curious from the perspective of a pediatrician, at what point do you see a parent and address gender? Or do you, you know, do you address gender? Or is it something, do you do something different in your practice because of the way you think about gender and sex and everything that we've been talking about? And or, you know, when do you address it? Yeah. So like Nevin was talking about earlier, I really resonated with what he was saying about uh, gender identity and can it change over time? Because he brought up a very important point in that it has been used in the past to say, oh, they're going to, you know, this child's going to change their mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I do think gender identity can be fluid. Right. However, with that being said, you know, the patients that I have seen that are transgendered patients said, I knew when I was three years old, 
right? I knew that my body did not match how I felt on the inside at three. And I think that goes along with what we see is that, you know, two-year-olds know, can see differences. That's a, called a girl, that's called a boy, that person's chocolate or brown or black or however they name it. That person's white or vanilla or cream or peach, whatever. So they are seeing differences. They are not blind. And so as kids are seeing differences, they are, they are trying on new things. They are um, engaging in behavior that others might think is not, does not align with their gender. So you might see a boy wear high heels or wear a dress or a girl wear whatever it is boys wear. I don't know. And they're starting to form their kind of own self-identification. And that can happen as young as three. So when my trans patients are saying, yeah, at two and a half, at three years old, I knew, or their mother is saying, they knew, they told me, mommy, I'm a girl. I believe them because it ha it's happening early. And not that it can't change, but the people, you know, that I've seen, they knew, <laughs> they knew early. The people I, I know as well, like the people that I know now who are trans teens, it was a matter of when their parents decided to see it, but they saw it out of the gate. Yeah. But as like, you know, friends or family or colleagues, you know, adults watching children, as you're watching children grow, you see, but you're not in that particular family, but it feels so clear. And then it's just oftentimes a matter of what your adult is willing to see or not see. But I mean, that's probably problematic too, because what I'm seeing is nothing to do with necessarily the other, the child's experience, but it happens that the, that has been my anecdotal experience. And yeah. usually it takes until that transition into to adolescence where puberty comes in, that that's been the conversation. So I'm curious if, if you know, how that goes for you. Yeah, so as we said, gender, can, gender identity can be fluid. It generally stabilizes by six, usually, not always. And so I think, you know, in, in my practice, I have to say, you know, uh, the pediatricians that I know, the pediatricians that I've talked to, don't always intentionally bring it up, right? It's like, are you a boy or a girl or something? Neither, right? Like, I don't think that that happens. It may come up in the course of conversation, but I honestly don't think that there has been a concerted concerted effort in early childhood to talk about gender, certainly in adolescence. And certainly when adolescents don't feel like, you know, their body matches how they're, they're feeling on the inside. And I really like Nevin's use of the word essence, because I think that yeah. is just like beautifully done. And so I think we are too late when we talk about gender and we talk about gender identity and expression. I feel like when I've talked about it the most, it's because of a problem. And I use that, and I'm air quoting for your podcast <laughs> members. Um, it's when a parent is panicked and think there's a problem. What is going on? Why is little Johnny wanting to wear my clothes and wanting to have a baby in his belly? You know, wh what's going on there? Um, and so I think we absolutely can do a better job as pediatricians and also as parents about thinking about the gender identity um, spectrum and also the just the development that happens. So when, let's say, a three-year-old says, I'm a boy, but they're, what's a healthy response 
to your child? Because I think a lot of people respond with, you know, no, silly, you're a girl or you're a boy or, you know, and what maybe what makes you say that or any of those things. And I haven't, you know, and I, I do think I've, you know, you get panicked phone calls, like, what does this mean? But there, there is another lens to look at this or through which to look at this, my English after four hours on the, <laughs> a little wonky, um, is that it just is like, let them tell you who they are. And that builds trust so that they can grow up being who they are. And so I guess I want to ask about that and then just kind of what you've seen clinically when kids aren't recognized for who they are, if they do have, if their essence is something different than what they were born with and what happens, what's the impact on mental health for the kids who really are in a space of feeling different from what everybody perceives them as? Yeah. So I think your first question is, you know, what should a parent do if a, if their three-year-old is saying that they're a boy and their assigned sex at birth was a girl? Like, what do they do? And I think certainly what you said, being supportive, you can ask, well, what makes you think that, right? But then also, okay, let's let's do that. Show the, Show them a wide variety of toys and books and puzzles and all of the things and support them through that journey. Because I, I will say it is hard, you know, it's not always easy, especially for a, a young kid to know that they look differently, but, and they feel something different on the inside. So for you to shut that down, you're, you may be potentially closing off more conversation about how that that child is feeling, right? If you're like, no, 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 and being dismissive about how they're feeling and they're trying to communicate and tell you something. As a parent, I think most parents want the lines of communication to be open. And so hear what they have to say. Why, why do they say that? And, and to be there, be supportive of, of their journey. For kids that are, you know, are, their essence is different, than what their body looks like or what they were assigned as at birth, it is scary, okay? It is like, and I think Nevin said earlier about risking losing it all. And that is real. That is a very, not only real feeling, but that's also a very real consequence. And kids know that, kids are smart. And so if they are able to express that, you know, they risk being bullied at school. I've got patients that have been terribly bullied at school, you know, because yesterday they were Sam, today, you know, they were Samantha and they're wearing dresses and they're wearing skirts and whatever. And the kids can't understand it. The teachers aren't handling it well or whatever, and they're getting bullied. And of course, with a lot of bullying comes depression, anxiety at times, isolation, and that's outside of the family. And then within the family, not every parent takes it well either, right? And so I've seen in other families, there's been um, like a division, you know, dad won't talk to you anymore, doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Um, and I think kids are aware of that, even at early ages, like, oh my gosh, what, what if they don't accept me? Or they may have may have heard their parents say something that was not actually friendly, you know, about a gay person or a person that was dressed in another way. And um, they know, oh, my my mom is not going to do well with that. So I just am not going to tell her because if I tell her, I could lose her. Um, and so those are things that um, are unfortunately very real consequences for 
kids that are, are transgender. And so as Nevin said, like being willing to risk it all is is really difficult. And so that's why we need to get the language right. We need to make sure schools are um, trained and supportive and, and there for them because it is a very tough road for many trans kids. I don't know if I answered any of your questions, but. Yeah. Um, and also my question was not super clear because I have so many, I think there's just so much on, on our minds because there's also this other thing which is sexuality you can be completely comfortable in the body that you were assigned at birth but not comfortable with the romantic relationships or sexual relationships you're expected to have for many kids the issue is not whether your body matches your essence but it's actually about something that happens when you're a little bit older, which is your, your feelings about who you're going to be involved with romantically or sexually. And I want to talk about that because the other thing schools have been doing a lot of, so parents have asked a lot about is we're talking about sexuality at an earlier age as well, because there's a lot of just wanting to open up conversations, but then kids who weren't necessarily processing like it doesn't make sense to them girl boy they anything because they're just not there yet are wanting to name their proclivity Mm. I think that's an interesting question one because I think when it's when the conversation is about a relationship outside of the norm then we're all like oh my god what but we talk about relationships and sexual feelings, orientations, whatever, when kids are babies. Like if you even look at some of the clothing, like I hated this. When my son was born, I think somebody gave him like a a, sh- a shirt, a onesie that said like, ladies uh, I'm a ladies man or ladies one at a time. Or I'm like, he's a newborn. Ew, what? Like, like, like girl or friends and toddlers, it's like they're boyfriend and girlfriend oh he's flirting or she's exactly exactly but if I say oh no no no, I I want I want boys one at a time you know that would be outrageous right like and so I think having that conversation it's been had people have been you know like they're talking about babies and and they're being ladies men and so I don't I don't think having a conversation about you know a gay, lesbian, any of those type of relationships makes someone become a gay person, a lesbian, a transgender person. You are just saying there are many different um, types of relationships, many different type of people in this world. Isn't that amazing? Um, And I had a conversation with my son. I don't even remember how old he was. But to say just that, I think he was maybe, I don't know, four or five to say like, you know, mommy and daddy are in a relationship. We're married. We love each other. But other families have different relationships. I think um, at the time, one of his good friends, his good friend had two mommies. 
So we talked about, you know, some people, some girls like girls, some boys like boys, some boys like girls, like some boys like both. Like, um, mm-hmm. and so it didn't, it wasn't a graphic conversation about like how the parts were right? But it's just that families are different. Families can look different. People can love who they love. And so that's how our conversation started. And it's certainly much more advanced now that he's older, but that's where we started. It didn't make him say, oh, I like boys or I like girls because he didn't like anybody, right? He's little. Exactly. It's just knowing that the world can look very different from the very basic presentation that sometimes you get in books. And I mean, it is kind of the same thing with, yeah, I'm going Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think even um, when you're trying to think about these issues early on, it's even correcting the people you love, right? Because people will say, he's so handsome. He's going to, you know, he's going to get all the girls. And I just, again, I hated that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, or boys, you know, like, or whoever, (laughs) like, who cares? He's he's an infant. Like, why are we talking about who he's going to be with in, you know, 20 years? But Mm -hmm. even like changing those kind of basic assumptions, because they're meant to be like compliments, but really like, I don't know who he's going to be into. So like, that's kind of where we started. Because then you, you know, like Nevin, I imagine, and this is totally an assumption you're going to potentially correct in two seconds, but I imagine my assumption is that being Black and queer is not as easy as it sounds now that you are super aware of who you are and comfortable in your skin and out in the world. Like when you were a kid, was it, was there a, I guess that's where intersection comes in, right? It's just, is that too personal? Uh, no, I, I mean, so well, I'll, I'll share that this so that we can talk about what's per, like my personally, um, I, I came out on MTV, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty out there, um, back when oh, I was in, that's in, how in college. Came- well, no, like to, to some, to some people, but, uh, I, 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 I came out, so I'm, I'm, I'm all good with talking about this stuff. Um, but before I talk about my personal journey a little bit, I just want to say the importance and this ties into my personal journey, the importance of kind of what we're speaking about. One, I, I love, uh, recognition and, uh, to remind your listeners, right. That gender identity is different than sexual orientation in that conversation. Important to note. And then, so this specific conversation around introducing kids to different family makeups and possibilities, um, the idea of sexual orientation and doing that early is because, right, your kid, (laughs) uh, straight couples have gay kids. Like, I don't know what y'all know, but it's (laughs) (laughs) Uh, queer kids come from, can come from straight couples as well. And so the importance of like talking about different kinds of families is just important in general, but also for the sake of you're giving space for your child to possibly say to you, oh, I may want that kind of relationship or, or I like that because the opposite, when you don't make space for that or you're silent around that, it also um, sends a message that in silence is interpreted as my parents aren't okay with this or, um, or may not be okay with this, right? When we are silent about certain issues, we allow the other, the audience members to be able to interpret that silence how they want. And so if we really want to be supportive of our kids and our children, 
we can't be silent about certain things. And so our acceptance of them and their whole selves and whoever that is, is important. And I think for me, growing up, there was, you know, I, I have a mom, dad, lovely sister. So I don't remember we had, I think part of what was lucky for me is I had an uncle who was gay um, but he he died of AIDS-related illnesses when I was young. And so I never really got to know him. Um, I wish I uh, would have. Um, but I say that to say him being uh, in my family on my mom's side, he kind of did a lot of work for me, right? And, and they loved him, accepted him um, in that. And at a much earlier time, society-wise, than when I came along, my dad's side didn't really, uh, my mom's side, it's, I think it's also important to know my mom's side is a bunch of women. <laughs> uh, my dad's side is a bunch of men. <laughs> I have all aunts basically on my mom's side, I have all uncles on my dad's side. So on my dad's side, there, there was no queer people that I was aware of. But I think, you know, in those moments, those real critical moments, I never, uh, as I was coming into myself, I rarely thought about, oh, my mom had a, had a brother who was gay. I instead remembered the times where my mom said something that seemed a little bit like unaccepting or homophobic or when my dad seemed like, oh, that was a little homophobic and, and it felt very unsafe. And I won't say, yeah, so I'll say it felt unsafe. It felt... Um, at school, it was, I went to an all guy school. I played sports. There was at the time, there was no, there were no images in the media of a person who was gay at that, at the time, my, my early adolescence, I identified as, uh, as gay and not queer. At the time, there were no gay depictions within media who weren't feminine. So I didn't also see myself. And that led to me trying to, you know, play sports in high school. But ultimately, I was outed by someone at the school who was gay. And that kind of pushed me into, um, with a bunch of other things going on, pushed me into a depressive state where I started eating, like, lunch with our school, our diversity uh, coordinator, because, uh, like, lunchrooms, at this point, I was in high school, lunchrooms are vicious. Um, and especially if you're the newly outed gay kid, right? And I think I didn't come out to my parents. I, I, I held that in for a long time, me being outed because my parents, my family members still didn't know. And so I would come home and I know that Nia would ask my mom like, hey, something seems up with Nevin. He's a bit of a jerk, right? And so when we think about even how, how do kids handle and express while going through things, right? That's the best way that I could with that pushing people away because for me, I was also pushing them away to probably become comfortable with a reality in case they didn't accept me because I had never really heard that acceptance put directly. And so I got to a point where I came out to my mom. Um, I came out to my sister. My sister actually is the only person within my direct family who I was able to say the words like I'm gay. To my parents, I said to them, we started the conversation with, you love me no matter what, right? So I kind of tried to leverage that before we got into that conversation to remind them of like a promise they made to me. Um, but with Nia, I was, I, I told her, 
And with both, just to give an idea of like the gravity and what's at risk, I made sure with all three, with my mom, my dad, and Nia, that before I came out to them, I had like one last big moment that I could remember having with them just in case they didn't accept me. So with my mom, we had this whole day and I had just won a scholarship um, because I, f- I figured like who couldn't love their child after they just won this scholarship, right? And spent this whole day with my sister. It was my high school graduation. Unfortunately, I had to tell her like right before we went into dinner, but I figured she'd be okay with me knowing uh, or, or with knowing about me and with my dad. It was before I got dropped off at my freshman year of, of college. And we, and we shared this whole day together of just being with each other. And I say that because that is often a, when saying these things to their parents or how hard it is to come out is I wanted to remember like this moment before they knew just in case they don't love or accept me or all of me so that I can hold on to that. Every time I hear this story, like, it just is so hard, Devin. Like, I'm almost at t- in tears. It just is a reminder for everyone listening why it's so important. Like, why the pronouns and the words and understanding all of this is so important. Because I just feel like, damn, like, that's, that is, like, no one would want that for anyone. But certainly not their best brother or their child. And it's just like the weight, you had the weight of the world on your shoulder. You literally had the weight of the world on your shoulders. I can't even like imagine having to think about losing mom's love or dad's love or any of that. That is just like a thought that is unfathomable to me. And I think when you told me, I was, I was floored because I didn't know. I really didn't know. And I was like, oh my God, have I, have I done anything? Have I said anything? Have I ever been not supportive? Because I just, and Evan was going on, going away to college. And I just felt like, oh my God, I, I haven't protected you. I haven't done the things that I needed to do that a big sister should do to protect their brother. I didn't know. And I think that was really hard. That was hard for me because I felt like, oh my God, I would have done this differently. I would have said this. I'm, you know, if I've said anything to you, I'm sorry. I love you. But I didn't know how dad was going to take it. I assumed mom would be fine because of Uncle Ducky, who I loved and had a great relationship with, uh, who passed. Um, But I didn't know because like you said, they hadn't talked about it. So I really didn't know what to expect either, but I just, oh God, the story every single time. I love you so much. And that's why for my son, for any kid that comes into my office, like I, I'm trying to do for them what I felt like I failed to do for you. Thank you for sharing that story. And for, that was such a, the idea that a child would worry about being loved by their parent, like as a parent, that is so gutting. And it's not through the fault of parents. It's just so important to remember that kids will make up whatever you don't tell them. I just wanted to say, you know, with my sister, uh, I don't think she, she, she failed me. And, um, I, I think she's a perfectionist and is hard on herself and does everything she can, no matter what, and has always shown up. And I think that is truly why I was able to see, say the, the words actually to her that I am, I am gay um, at the time. 
I think, you know, the truth is with a lot of this as, as parents, um, you can't be with your kids all the time. Um, and part of my feelings and my thoughts about my parents' silence was also a product of my environment. And, um, but I think that hones in more of even more why parents need to be like, create that space at home and be so verbal because you don't know what your kids are carrying outside of when they're in your home and kids have a way of holding on to things and not sharing things mm -hmm. uh, as a way to protect you and things like that. So, um, and truly creating like the safe space and this open communication and dialogues is, is so important that your kids share to you, even what you don't know that they're not sharing. Yeah. I always think also, right. The idea that you would need to feel like you don't, like you need to protect your parent from anything is just, it's a reminder to always make sure that kids know that we've got us so they can be them. I so appreciate that you've made that commitment to humanity because it's a big commitment. Um, and you guys really are living it to really care for human beings in this beautiful way. And I also want to point out that it's not I'm not sure how to, I mean, I think when you're a pediatrician and a mental health professional and professor, it's, it's embedded in your work to be out there and, and help make sure that this, you know, no child goes unnoticed and no human being is marginalized. And also I recognize that it's not, the onus is not on a black queer identifying yeah, just a black queer identifying man to have to make sure that we understand gender, sexuality, racial justice, like every, everything. And nor is it on a black cis, I just wanted someone else to be cis because cis feels so, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Boring. But... <laughs> Uh, physician, this female physician, to make sure that diversity and equity and inclusion is part of the American Academy of Pediatrics. But it has been your, you know, you guys chose those paths. So I feel comfortable and honored that you're willing to share your knowledge and wisdom with this community. And also just in general, because your work is so powerful and I'm excited and so thrilled that I get to work with you. My God. <laughs> We feel equally honored. So happy to even be able to share this space with you and your listeners. I think Nevin's story is just so powerful. And I hope, you know, even if one person can hear that and be moved and be there for their child, like he, he you know, did his job <laughs> beyond his job. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for having us and allowing us to talk about this is so important. Absolutely. Thank you, I think guys. I was just going to say, I think the scary thing about my story, right, is that it's not unique. And, and I share, I share the story so that it becomes unique, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes the way that things aren't. 
And I appreciate this space um, for being able to share and creating uh, a humanity, a world where this story does become unique. And as always, I appreciate my sister for the work that she does um, always and forever and creating a better world. And, and knowing that uh, in my small world, she, she did make it better and made, made it safe and safer and does so I know for her child and I hope that everyone listening does so for theirs.